and welcome to this brand new podcast called What It Takes To Be. Thank you for listening. Here's a little snippet of what we got coming up. Shook me a little bit. I was just walking down the street and some some blokes come out from on a bus shoulder with a balaclava on and um, pulled me down and, and bothered me around the head and a um, bit of a scuffle on the floor and another guy come out and there was a few boys further ahead from the digs who come running back and, and helped me, got me up. The other guys legged it and I had like blood just pouring over my face. Had to go to hospital and get stitches. We cannot wait to find out a little bit more about this person. So sit back, relax and enjoy episode number two of What It Takes To Be. Welcome back to this brand new podcast called What It Takes to Be. Myself, Dean Bowditch, and co-host Jack Sharp. Hi, Bo. Uh, how are you? We are, we're very excited to pick the brains of individuals who have gone on to achieve something exceptional. Uh, we want to know past and present, their ups and downs, and what it has taken to get into the position that they are in today. We really want to help influence people to not only chase their dreams and succeed, but what it really takes to get there. So without further ado... I want to introduce our guest this week on what it takes to be. This person took the plunge at the age of 16 to travel across the globe and chase their dream of becoming a professional footballer. Having played over 300 career appearances for club and country and still only 28 years old, this person has had huge success over a seven-year period with Preston North End being named Young Player of the Season, then went on to represent their homeland of Australia 24 times. Um, I am really, really pleased to welcome Bailey Wright. How are you doing, Bailey? I'm good, thanks guys. Thanks for that uh, introduction. It was that. Was that all right? <laughs> it feels like uh, a very long, very long time ago when I uh, moved over. But when you look at it, it probably wasn't that long ago. No, but. it was wasn't that long at all, uh, at all. And we will cover that in 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 this podcast. But we we start every podcast with exactly the same question, Bailey, with with every guest with a slightly different ending. What does it take to be a successful overseas player in the English game? It takes a lot of uh, self-belief and determination. Um, it was one of them. When I come, when I moved to the UK, um, I knew all I wanted to do was to play football. Um, and to get that opportunity um, to come over and play football was like opportunity achieved. You know what I mean? You've come over, you've got the chance to play football um, as a YT and the chance to actually do it for a living. I always dreamt of it as a kid from Australia. And it was always to come to England. Um, it's all I ever thought about. It's all I really knew about football was just football England. It's all you had to know. Um, so for me, it was um, it was a, an opportunity for me to go and live my dream with no pressure attached to it, really, because you know from the moment I had the opportunity to move over, that was almost dream achieved. Um, it took a lot of courage and self belief because I was so far away from my family. And I knew what opportunity I had and had to commit to it, even though sometimes I was tempted to to want to go back and, and work work with my old man. But I love I've loved every minute of it. I've come across some great people. Um, and those people have been a big part of what's made it go well for myself. It's not just me, it's uh, having a lot of good people around me that have that have contributed. Can you can you just explain then as a as a it was sixteen, right? 16. Yeah, 16. So as a, as a, as a, I can't fathom this because I don't think I could have done it because at 16 year old, you are still a, a young boy, really. To, to make that decision must have been 
extremely difficult but just explain to me the influence behind that you know what got you to that point to then make that plunge because you can't have done it all on your own surely no it was do you know I think it was a harder harder decision for my parents than it was for me I was 16 didn't feel 16 I didn't look 16 um <laughs> I was a few kilos too heavy as well when I first came over but I, I guess my pathways in Australia just sort of faded away in football um I, I enjoyed school but I wanted to be a footballer or I wanted to go and work from old man if that didn't work out and I partially did that for you know six months to a year before I actually got the opportunity to move to the UK and never look back the opportunity come about through an email um, that my dad sent to Blackburn Rovers at the time we had a contact there who was a, a family friend's friend um, they offered us a trial and we put us up in accommodation wow. and they gave us the email address of the chief scout at Preston North End and so that was just far off, far off email hi my son's coming over um, this was my mum and dad they sent the emails would you be willing to give them a trial and they did so I flew over to England um, my dad met me there he came over as well I was actually away with the Australian under 17s team in America and then flew from America to the UK for my trials I had my trial at Blackburn no I got there late due to international commitments and had one training session with Preston um, and then I was on on my trial the next week with Blackburn and from that one session um, the youth team manager Jamie Hoyland just pulled me straight away and said oh before you speak to Blackburn speak to us because we'd really like to have you here and I was just like I thought it was just a bit of a holiday like just come and kick the ball around and without anything would come about and and it did and yeah Blackburn didn't work out on trial Preston did thankfully and I owe a lot to Jamie and Dean Ramsdale and Nick Harrison who were there and Jim McCluskey at the time they were um gave gave me a chance I moved over six months later and I was living in digs with 19 other lads which was just happening <laughs> Party time. Well, it was the furthest thing from it because you had so many, like, it was brilliant. I absolutely loved it. And Mick and Joan, um, who I call my UK parents, um, were unbelievable. And like I said before, having good people around you made it so much easier. And I'm speaking about people like that that, you know, made it feel like home when you're so far away from home. There is times when, you know, I wasn't homesick and I love my family and I love my friends, but. I just loved what I was doing and homesickness, I, I didn't really get hit with the homesickness bug, which I thought I would. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I just loved what I was doing and, and knew I was yeah, living my dream. Bailey, I want to explore, mate, if I can. Growing up, what instilled that mental toughness and resilience to be in a position to go, I'm going to take the plunge here? So obviously the motivating factors you spoke about are really, really key, but to be motivated for something, you also have to have other skill sets around mentality that sit beneath that, that allow you to jump into the unknown. So do you have any experiences you think that shaped, shaped that in your childhood in particular? Yeah, I, I had, I grew up in a bit of a country town, you could say, in Victoria, where Aussie rules was probably our number one sport and, you know, our football teams weren't very strong. It was more teams from Melbourne in the city suburbs were, were better teams. So I always played for, for teams where we weren't the best. I you know, probably would say I was normally always up there with some of the better players in most of my teams, but we'd play against teams that were normally always better than us. And I enjoyed that competition, even though some days you'd get battered. It was sort of someone else set the marker for you to go and try and achieve. And you're like, right, I have to get to there. You know, and, and that's what 
losing gives you it gives you a marker to go well how am I going to beat them next time how am I going to get better um, and I had that a lot in my junior teams I had a lot of setbacks and I had a lot of disappointments in in terms of you know, for example our select state team which is you know the best players in Victoria and often you go the trial hundreds of kids would turn up and you know they'd try to pick their their favorite players to go the next round next round and that's how it worked and I never got past the first round and I used to be so disappointed and my mum and dad used to always be real supportive, never really pushed me too hard, um, allowed me to make my own decisions of if I wanted to um, pick myself up and, and compete and drive or just be complacent and be like, right, well, I'm not good enough, so I'll stop trying. I enjoyed playing football. I enjoyed working hard and took everything serious. I'm, I'm a real serious person on the football pitch, in training, in games, and I was like that as a kid. If you got the better of me, I, I was making sure that, I'd, I'd go and improve myself and eventually the state trials every year I'd get knocked back um, and then one year I was like I'm not going to bother this year um, I'm just going to play my football and, and try to play at the highest level I could at 13 I got the opportunity and I was actually playing men's football at 13 um, I was like I said I was a bit of a chubby lad quite quite strong for my age you could say looked a bit older um, and I was playing sort of under 21s reserve team football um, training with the first team at Dandenong Thunder and most kids my age, you know, were playing under 13s, which was um, quite a big drop below. And it just happened to be that the the state coach saw me play one day and someone said, he's 13, like he can play for your state team. And he thought they were bluffing, basically. Um, I was playing men's football and then, yeah, he brought me in late into the Victorian trials and I got my opportunity that way through just persisting of self-belief and driving Competing with men made you made you tough. I didn't make excuses for myself. I didn't care that I was younger than anyone else. I just wanted to be better than them and be like that 13-year-old who's better than a 21-year-old. I was like, that's my drive, not oh, I'm 13, you got to give me some leeway. It was like, don't care, just going to get there. Do you know what? I, I'm glad you asked the question like that, Jack, because it, there's always that kind of, you know, what what has kind of made you that person as like so young? I've read a book a little while ago um, called Talent Code, and it talks around siblings. If, you, if you're the oldest sibling, usually you don't necessarily go on to do anything uh, of a spectacular form or whatever it may be. Normally, it's the second child or the third child because they're always looking up. They're always chasing. They're always pushing to try and be better than their, their older siblings. And you, whilst you were talking there, I was actually thinking, you know, don't, have you got any older brothers or sisters? Yeah, I'm I'm the baby of the family, so. Uh, <laughs> you kind of answered the question with being a 13-year-old playing with 20-year-olds. You know, that even if you didn't have any siblings, that would have probably instilled resilience. But I found that book, re- that, well, that part of that book was really interesting because you look at all the real top stars and they normally have the older brothers, older sisters. Even though you've got your older brothers and sisters, when you were like four, five, six, was you trying to chase them around? Yeah, I've. You know, when you say it like that, I've probably not really thought of it in detail like that, but I 100% agree with it. Like, you know, I've got three, I've got a twin sister, another two older sisters and an older brother. And, you know, as you do brothers, you wrestle, you fight, you want to hold your own. Um, And I always wanted to, I guess, compete with him, um, compete with my dad. He played football and was a fit guy. And uh, yeah, I just hated, didn't didn't like excuses. And, you know, when you look at like, when you look at it like that, it it would have started from when I was a kid um, in family life. It's funny when you when you look at it and actually evaluate it like that. It's it's bang on.
before we uh before we move on to talk a little bit about you as a pro there's there's one other question i'd like to explore as you as a as a young man coming over and that's the changing culture because i imagine even a nice sunny warm climate to come and to come and complete seasons after season in the northwest of England is a bit of a change to a young person. So, how did you deal with the challenges associated to, to, to culture when you when you come over? Um, I guess uh, one of the local soccer clubs I played for, so we called them then. Um, Lang Warren was full of British and Scottish, um, and I was sort of brought up around that sense of humour. I've got British in my blood. Um, my mum's from Guernsey. My dad's born in Australia and my, my grandparents are, are from uh, from West Ham. So I've got that in my blood a little bit. So I kind of got the culture. Um, it's a strange mix. Yeah, it is. It is an interesting mix. A bit like my accent now. It probably sounds Aussie, but it's all over the place. Um, but one of the toughest things for me actually was when I walked in, it walked in the digs and I didn't. So when I was on trial with Preston, I'd only met a few of the lads because it was really close to Christmas. And all the foreign lads had gone home. It was just a couple of local lads and a couple of young lads, you know, trying to get um, their scholarships for the next year. So some of them weren't there. And I walked in the digs. And I remember getting to the stairs and I was like, oh, hi, I'm, I'm Bailey. And one of them was like, and I was like, what he just said to me? And I remember just shaking my head going, nice to meet you. I like thinking, no idea what he's just said. Um, and then I turned out there was like seven Northern Irish lads living in the house. So you had to adapt to that culture quickly at, at weekends. It was just the foreign lads in the house. All the English lads would go home and it would be Northern Irish, a couple of English lads and, and me and one other Aussie at the time, actually. Cameron Parrish was there too, but we didn't know each other. But I loved the culture. It was, you know, people love football. It's very, very similar, you know, we're, we're human beings. And I guess what helped is once you earn, you know, on a footballer's perspective, once you get your first session out of the way when you move over, um, you feel like you earn respect, that you feel like you've earned your stripes, that you're good enough to, to be there. Um, and then you start building relationships with people. And like I said, there was some tough times. I'd, you know, I'm going to say probably two months in, I had a little bit of an experience as a 16, 17-year-old. Um, shook me a little bit. I was just walking down the street and some some blokes come out from on a bus shelter with a balaclava on and um, pulled me down and, and bottled me around the head and a um, bit of a scuffle on the floor and another guy come out. And there was a few boys further ahead from the digs who come running back and, and help me. Got me up. The other guys legged it and I had like blood just pouring over my face. Had to go to hospital and get stitches. And I remember thinking at that time, right, I'm going to have to call my parents and tell my mum and dad I've just uh, been battered in England. Been here for two months. Called them and they were just panicking as they do. But I was just like, you know, yeah, of course it freaks you out a little bit because you're thinking, Am I, who, who was it? To this day, I still don't know who it was. No one ever found them. So you're challenged in that regard. Being a long way from home, when you go through little experiences like that, it does shake you up because uh, it's just completely out blue, literally on the doorstep of where, you, where you're going to live the next few years of your life. But it also makes you who you are and um, yeah, it makes you a bit more um, ready to, to just crack on and, and go head on in. So the culture, adapting to the culture had its challenges, but – I loved them. I'm a pretty easygoing person and, and I'd like to think I can get along with most people and had good people around me. I'll be honest, um, when we asked about uh, the cultural differences, I weren't expecting you to tell me that you got bottled over the years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to make the highlight reel. I, 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 I wasn't like, expecting that. <laughs> you know, I, think, I, I, think, I think, uh, I'll actually to add to that story. It's quite, this is quite funny. I come into training the next day 
with the youth team and I had like stitches all over my head and a big bruise and that. And uh, Alan Irvine was the manager and he was like, want to see him office. And I'm thinking, he thinks I'm a little thug. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and he was just checking I was all right and heard what happened, which was fine. But obviously I was thinking, oh no, he's going to think I'm a thug going out fighting people. What? I'm not like, it's not me. I'm not that sort of person. And, um, but yeah, I've had a lot of great experiences. That was just one of the, the bad ones. I've had, had many great ones here. Yeah. And I think in football, football's the universal language, isn't it? So when it comes to breaking down barriers and cultures, as you said, you get that first session out of the way, it almost just becomes that normality, doesn't it? You're kicking the ball in Australia, you're kicking the ball in England. It's it's the common theme, isn't it, of, of kicking it around with people. So uh, that's really interesting, mate. Thank you for sharing that. Um, we're going to go to a bit of peace now. Uh, we're going to go all the way to the other extreme. So we've gone from youth player. We're now going to go to international player because we're going to visit your club career uh, middle towards the back end of, of, of this podcast. So um, one of the things that we try and get out with our guests is is challenges and, and how they've overcome challenges and how they've used difficult times to promote better performances moving forwards. So talking about your international career to, to begin with, how did you deal with the challenges associated to playing international football? Because you've got the the added pressure of travelling because the nation that you represent, there's the pressure to be being selected. So, so how did you deal with all of this, um, as well as obviously performing to the best of your ability in, in the club game? Yeah, I guess in terms of the travel side of things for Australia, it is far. Everything's, you know, long trips for us. But I don't know any different. So, I mean, I know I've played, you know, club games and, you know, it's easy travelling around just by bus. Um, but on an international point of view, um, I guess you just refer back to, as an Aussie, you like doing things the hard way in some ways. Like like I said, I, I you know, defeats made me stronger. The, the tougher the challenge, the more you wanted to rise up to it. And that's what we have with international. I guess we, we never, ever ever talk about it as an excuse like oh like we're knackered we'll be more knackered because of them because of the travel never ever does that discussion ever happen that's just not in our nature but of course you've you've got some good professionals there that that make that easier on an international um you've got some great professionals sports science some of the best in the world in that setup coaches physios masseuses managers everyone you know security they just make everything a breeze when you do travel so for that you know you're very fortunate that you do get to travel like that. Um, in terms of experiences, my first ever international experience was I went to the World Cup in Brazil. Um, I was I felt a million miles away from the from the squad before it. There was quite a few injuries, and it's funny how football works. Sometimes injuries open the doorway for someone else, and that someone else at the time was me. You know, as, as bad as you feel for some people that miss out on that and put a lot of work into it, that's the nature of the sport, and I got my opportunity that way. Uh, it was an incredible experience. Still, one I wasn't wasn't ready for, to be honest. Didn't didn't get the opportunity to play, but just I, I felt like it was just a whirlwind. Everything that was going on and you know players around me, some some real top quality players, um, and that experience was just um, moments where you're always pinching yourself. And I, and I remember when the World Cup officially kicked off. Brazil was the first game. We were sat in a hotel because we were playing the next day or the day after all sat in our hotel rooms watching the game and Brazil scored before Brazil scored the roads in this city were just, there wasn't a single car or person walking in this city. It was just dead because everyone was just watching the football. And as soon as Brazil scored, you looked out your window, there's people driving down the road with their cars and, and it was like, Whoa, like just turned into party. And you're like, this is a world cup and this is Brazil. 
this is the ultimate. So that experience just gave me a real taste of what you know what opportunities can be ahead. And I got to make my debut. Not then. It was in an international friendly against Saudi Arabia um, at Craven Cottage, which I scored on debut. So always remember that. I got a tap in that day, so I'll, I'll take it all day long. And from that opportunity, I thought, right, I'm going to get more. And I didn't. It took me it took me a bit of bit of time to get selected again and make the squads. Um, sort of found myself dropped down the pecking order a little bit. But like I've always said, self-belief, persistence, and and drive eventually got me back in there. And I've obviously had some some great experiences since, um, which you know has been grateful to be able to share with my family. Um, some special moments having family come with us on to games and and tournaments. I've I've qualified for a World Cup in the playoff game in Sydney. You know where it was all or nothing. If you didn't win that game, you weren't going to the World Cup. And to playing a game with that you know, stakes that high, I remember thinking before the game like this is the biggest game I've played in in Australia to qualify for Russian World Cup and playing Honduras in the second leg. And when you get moments like that in your career, like the, the emotions that overcome you after it are just incredible because it's just a sense of relief and achievement that you've done it for, you know, a lot of people that have been there every step of your way, my wife, my family, everyone, um, they're the people that, that drive you on and, and make moments like that possible. Something that I've, I've always been really interested in when, when International Weekend comes around in particular is how easy it is for a player to almost park up what they know on the day-to-day basis and pick up with new coaches that they see every few months, a new way of playing, new information. How's, as a player, how do you deal with that transition? That's a it's a good one, that, and it's one I've struggled with a little bit sometimes. You, know, you have your different styles, different philosophies of managers, um, Certainly early stages of my international career, our manager, Ange Postacoglu, brilliant, brilliant manager, brilliant coach, really learned a lot under under him and, and really enjoyed my football. And he was total football in terms of in training, the ball wasn't, he couldn't pass above waist height. He just really wanted total soccer, try to change the whole you know, way of what he wanted Australian football to be about. And he did it well. And then you'd go back to your club and it would be a bit different as a centre-back. It wasn't just those short passes, one of the, the longer balls as well. And and sometimes I took a little bit longer to, to shift out of gear, which could also be to some jet lag on top of that. Sometimes you're flying from Sydney to Manchester on a Thursday, training Friday, playing Saturday. And, you know, some sometimes you have a bad game and you're like, you look lethargic today. You're all over the place. <laughs> really well. <laughs> yeah, I am. <laughs> I wasn't really fully at it, but I'm here. Um, but I guess as you, you grow into the experience and you start to understand the game better, technically, tactically, you start to understand it better um, and mature as a player, you start to learn how to adjust and not just run around without a thought in your head. You've actually got a, a bit, of, bit of thinking about the way you play and that helped me mature as a player, I think. Um, I worked with some great managers from my clubs um, and from my country and learnt so many different styles of football that I didn't know back when I was, you know, 18, 19, 20, 21. You know, that's what, you know, makes you an experienced player, I guess, and makes it easier to adapt with international and, and club football. I want to head back to your club career if I can. And yep. and the reason why is because we, we both know we've, we've been on the pitch against each other and played against each other in the past especially as your time at Preston and 
And I remember the, the days going to Deepdale thinking, you know, that this ain't going to be a great game. This, this is going to be a tough game. You know, I used to, in a way, used to not like going there just because I knew it was going to be a tough, tough game. And what the question I want to ask is around Simon Grayson. He made a huge difference at that football club. And you saw that. What was it that you changed? Because, you know, you had your Graham Wesleys and people before that, you know, had a certain culture, a certain way, but he just seemed to change the whole, the, the wave of, of, of Preston North End, you know, and it just went from from good to great. So can you just elaborate a bit more about Simon Grayson and what, what he actually changed? Yeah, he, he obviously is someone who's had a massive um, impact on the club. He also had a big impact on me and my career. Probably the first manager where I felt, give me my first real proper run of first team football and, and help develop me. And I guess, you know, at the time, I, I probably didn't know what his strengths were exactly in terms of what why he was so good as a manager. I certainly felt the change as part of the change at the club. Um, and I guess one of the biggest things I'd probably say is he had this ability to to create a team of players which he'd trust and give 100% trust to, to manage the dressing room, to manage the day-to-day in a way that he obviously wanted um, and his culture. And he knew just how to take the pressure off players quite well and created like a hard working but relaxed atmosphere and it's quite a hard hard one sometimes you you can build up tension and and pressure within a dressing room after maybe a run of poor results or a bad result or a big game coming up he just had this ability just to treat it um and just make people feel at ease going into the game um and one of the biggest examples of that being a success is because Preston had a real hoodoo um with player finals at Wembley and or just player finals in general and Grayson uh, changed that um, obviously winning was it 4-0 and the lead up to Wembley um, was very much relaxed we were in a hotel um, having players quizzes and lads were up singing like you know the, the day before and it was just very much like not really thought that you know we've got a player final tomorrow and for many of us the biggest game we've probably played in our career and he just had this ability to just take the pressure off everyone create a sort of um, a culture of togetherness and sort of a family type culture. And obviously on the football pitch, he was well organised, well drilled and well planned with with what he wanted to do. A lot of it was very much routine. He was a very routine sort of manager that liked to do things a certain way and his way. And you kind of would know what, what sessions you, you'd be getting on a, on a day-to-day basis. Um, and lads would 100%, 100% commit to those sessions. Um, and I, I played many games under him, had some great experiences, and, and that one was probably the highlight, you know, winning at Wembley um, for a club, at a club that gave me my chance um, and, you know, with some great people there. Do you, do you feel like then he almost gave you players the kind of the, the trust and responsibility to kind of self-manage? Because you obviously played with Bukes, who I've played with uh, at Northampton, and Bukes, we spoke about Simon Grayson before, and he, he said... He said that actually in the, in the dressing room before a game and at half time, he never really sort of said a lot, never done a lot. He just the players used to just look after themselves, and that's kind of an art for, as a manager to get those players in and 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 let them just self manage. I think um, it wouldn't go too much into into tactics. Um, I, I guess you had your your basics, but he trusted lads in that dressing room. We had some good good leaders in that dressing room: Tom Clark, John Walsh. Bukes, Galley, um, there'll be a few I'm missing out here. Hunt, big Paul Huntington that's still there now, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. club legend. We had some great personalities um, in that dressing room 
we had a good squad and we all wanted the best for each other. We were competitive with each other every day on the football pitch, but like a healthy competitiveness because we got along well. And obviously the club's still doing well now. And, um, you know, Grayson was a, is a massive part of, you know, get, getting the club to where they are. Um, yeah, I guess he just wasn't a man of many words in terms of communication. It was um, pretty short and crisp and, yeah, allowed, like you said, to create that culture that the individuals could could bring out themselves and, and deal with in-game situations, training situations or things that needed addressing um, around the building. And I look at, you know, I, I watched the player final many times and you just sort of saw the grit and determination of the team. Yeah, we worked on some things for that game, but a lot of it was just communication, organising on the pitch to to get the job done and take responsibility, and that's that's a culture you created. Boys, I think it's a really interesting question you raised there because when we talk around high performance and high performing environments, I think the biggest key or the biggest eye opener to to high performing environment is when the culture is regulated by those that were within it. So when you, you're talking about how players regulate what goes on, I think that's the highest sign of of when high performance occurs in an environment where management hasn't got to check behaviours, they haven't got to have to worry about the petty stuff. It's all regulated within the group. And hearing that, it almost makes sense that there was that little bit of sustainable period where Preston were a successful outfit. Because I think success all stems from an environment that operates like that, especially within the world of football. Um, I'm going off piece a little bit, though, just for one more, just because I want to delve a little bit deeper. That's right. So I asked you the question in terms of how you deal with, uh, I suppose, a, a different environment at international level to club level. As a player, and now obviously you're a fairly senior player, I imagine, within Sunderland, how do you deal and keep yourself relevant when there's change of management and coaching staff within the club game? I guess it's uh, one of those things that you do experience. I've experienced it many times. Sometimes you, know, you never want to see a manager lose his job or his, his coaching staff. And sometimes you see it coming. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes you can feel in the dressing room that there's time for change and sometimes there's not. Many times there isn't. It's just, you know, the hierarchy decide that something needs to change. And unfortunately, the manager's the you know, one that can they can change at any point in the season. You know, it's not like a transfer window of players. Um, it can happen whenever they want. And um, I guess as a player, you have to adjust. And like I said before, with, with experience comes a better understanding of um, the technical and tactical side of the game, um, of what managers want and expect and how they want you to play. It's interesting how different a lot of managers are as people, as, as how they look at the game, which I love and I find it fascinating. Um, and obviously, yeah, you, I guess when a new manager comes in, you just want to impress and just be yourself as much as you can and, and to learn off them. And I think sometimes a new manager comes in, you want to do well and impress them and, and hope that, you know, you're a player that they want and, you know, have got you part of their plans. But sometimes it's not and, you know, it's not the end of the world. There's that many opportunities and football clubs out there and the right fit, right time. Um, sometimes you need the right manager and, and to be in the right place. And if it's not meant to be, sometimes you can try and force it. Um, which sometimes brings success or sometimes you can try and move on and, and look at other opportunities. I, I had a, a bit of a setback in some regards with Graham Wesley when he come into Preston. I played a few games under him. You know, it was a different character. Um, one I still learnt a lot off, even though at first he, I wasn't part of his plans. He put me on the transfer list 
ended up being a bit of a crazy sort of pre-season summer for myself and I just thought well I'll just make sure I'm fit and as ready for as possible for if it's playing for him I'm playing for him because I was playing for the club more than anything um, and if it wasn't for him it would be an opportunity elsewhere um, wherever that may be I'll try and make it happen ended up playing a lot of games through Graham Wesley even though his comments to me at the end of the season in his office was you're not a winner um, and I don't think you're good enough to be a winner um, so I'm going to put you in the transfer list. I don't have anything wrong with that, with him saying that to me because at the time they were his honest words and I appreciated, I appreciated his honesty. It killed me. Like I walked out the room crying. I was in the next room where the youth team manager was there. He was like, what's up? What's up? I was like, oh, I've just been told he, he wants to get rid of me. And he was like, no, like he was just shocked because I just played the last 15 games of the season for him. Did all right. Played left back a lot of it and no, I'm not. I'm not a left back. <laughs> but um, again, an experience like that sort of makes you ready. And um, one of those when a new manager comes in, you do your best. If it works out, great. If it doesn't, then you know that's the nature of football. It's right place, right time. There's all different styles and clubs and opportunities out there. It's got to make sure you're ready for them. Just talking about your setbacks, Bailey. You know, I'm. I'm sure you've had like myself plenty of setbacks in your career and it's how you react to those and and I think at times my reaction to setbacks could have been better when I look back but I suppose what what was your I suppose what was your biggest setback and how did you react to it you're saying about that one there with Graham Wesley I know you just covered it but if that was your biggest setback was it was it initial was it negativity straight afterwards or was you positive straight afterwards you know how was your reaction um after that one I was gutted. Um, I felt, yeah, like I'd just give him all for him. And he said, oh, you're not good enough. Off you go, basically. And then I spent the whole summer trying to find a club. Came back, wasn't part of the plans pre-season. Um, and it it hurt me, but I just thought, well, I'll have to find another opportunity. And and I and I did, and that ended up being playing under him. And I learned a lot um, in many different aspects. Um, which I'm appreciative of now was was my relationship with him brilliant or not. I was a fairly young lad. I didn't speak to him a lot. Um, I just did as did what I was told really. Um, but my probably my biggest setback um, in terms of football that hit me the hardest was um, there's a few. <laughs> there's, there's a lot. <laughs> but the one that hit me the hardest was I'd played. Uh, you know, a lot of qualif- a lot of games in our qualifying campaign for Russia World Cup. Um, put a hell of a lot of hard work into achieving that and making sure I was ready physically, mentally, and achieve that qualifying. Our manager quit after it. Um, still, obviously, for reasons of his own that you know was never really shared. But respect his decision because I respect him as a person. And then we brought in a new manager, Bert, Bert Van Marvik. Um, I haven't got many good things to say about him. I won't say them. <laughs> um, but obviously he's highly successful in what he's achieved in the game, so I can't take that away from him. He's obviously a very good manager, and many people do like him. But he took me in international camp. Um, I played right back, um, which I've played many times, but the, just the way he wanted me to play, it was not me as a player. And I was like, does he even know me as a player? I'm a, I'm a centre back who can play right back. A defensive right back he was talking about me getting up and taking on players and I was like well I can I can try this but I've, I've not really got that in me locker it's not it's not my game um I'm not built for that anyway we got 
pop that game against uh, Norway. Um, you know, I didn't have a great game. Many people didn't. And lads will be honest and back me up on that, that we, we weren't great that day and deservedly lost. And, um, yeah, that was the end of my international career under him. Um, I didn't receive a single message, phone call, uh, email. Um, a 30-man World Cup squad went out. Um, I was on holiday with my wife in um, Mykonos, doing yoga every day, keeping fit, ready to hopefully go to this World Cup, proper taking my holiday serious. And then the day that the squad was meant to get announced, I hadn't received anything, not a phone call, email, and I was like, a bit weird. Normally, Joel, the team manager, would have sent something out by now. So I messaged him, and he called me straight away, and he just said, look, I can't believe I've got to be the one that tells you this news, but you're not in the 30-man squad. He says, I didn't want to write an email. I wanted to call you, but I was like, I went to call you and I was like, I know it's going to eat you up. And I was at the time I was sitting there, I was like, is this real? I was like, I'm not, what's going on here? And like everything I'd worked for to go to a World Cup was just sort of taken away like that. And you're just like, Mrs. me as I walked out the room, she's like, she's new straight away. And uh, that holiday changed very quickly. I wasn't doing yoga or any fitness training after that, I'll tell you that. Uh, but it, it's a setback that hit me hard, but also brought back that international jersey is not yours. You know, every time you have that jersey, it's a privilege to have it. And you never know when you might get it again or when it might be last. I felt like I'd earned the right to be there. You never earn the right to be there. This is representing your country and there's a large pool of some high quality players. And for whatever reason, he didn't, didn't choose me and not one member of his actual, you know, from the previous regime, everyone had spoken to me and messaged me and knew that it would eat me up. But from all of his staff and everyone that come in, um, not a single message, phone call, email, not a single bit of contact. That That's sort of what hits you hard. Um, and, yeah, that set me back for a little bit and I had injuries and, and things after that. And I always think back now, I was like, I was injured um, and I had a few crappy injuries, but I also wondered how much my psychological thoughts and state of mind after that setback, did it was that affecting me without, you know, I'd like to stay at a positive mind and I was always committed to everything, 100%. But was there something niggling back in here that led to, you know, consecutive little injuries? I, I don't know, and it's something that I always think about. And fortunately, when after the World Cup, Bert left, he literally just took the World Cup and um, – what a great gig for him just to take a national team to the World Cup, not even qualify for it, take it, and then off he goes on his merries again. <laughs> and Graham Arnold come in, and one of the first things he did, he actually gave me a phone call. Um, I had a really long phone call with him. He just reassured me, like, you know, he didn't say you'll be selected, won't be selected. Um, he said, but one thing you will get is I'll treat you like a human being and treat you like a person. And he has ever since, um, regardless of if I've been selected or not. I've got huge amounts of respect for that. Um, and all that took was a phone call. If Bert had called me and, and spoken to me, um, you know, I, I respect his decision, but I, I don't respect the manner in which it was done or the human being that done it that way. But something that drives you on to make sure that no young footballers have to experience something like that again if they do get left out, that they're just hung out to dry and, and felt a bit worthless. But picked myself up and eventually got back in and, and have played international games again since. Baby, I'm going to try and bring your blood pressure back down so we don't have to talk. That's all Bert does to me. <laughs> um, Bert, <Van> <laughs> uh, there's a brilliant book 
called What Got You Here Won't Get You There um, by someone called Marshall, uh, Marshall Goldsmith, who talks around how successful people are successful to a certain point. But if they want to continue to be successful and even more successful, they've got to find ways to innovate and change what effectively what they've done isn't going to get them to where they want to go. So I know you place a real big emphasis upon your education at the moment. Me and you are on, we're on the same master's course at the moment. So as a current footballer, what importance should this industry place on active players looking at what the next steps are after this whirlwind of a journey? I'm glad you asked that, Jack, because I think it's something, it's something you don't look at enough as a player or anyone around the game, I believe. And I think you guys probably agree with that as well. There was uh, one of our physios at Bristol mentioned a, a talk they had with the PFA and it was around like mental health and educating some staff of, you know, how to look out for it with players, et cetera, et cetera. And we spoke about um, in the presentation that the PFA put on the statistic of footballers that go bankrupt or are divorced, you know, however many years after football is scary high. And I'm tipping that I think it was like 70% plus. And I'm tipping nearly every single one would probably say that wouldn't be me. And I'd, I'd sit here and say that won't be me. But when you look at that figure, that's there's no guarantees of that. And I think the void that, that can be left from playing football must be must be difficult. Um, COVID was probably a little taster for that for many that um, are still playing that, you know, can be taken away and be gone for, for a long time. And um, some have probably struggled to get clubs from that. And it's been, been a, a tough old tough all time for a lot of people and I guess um, before COVID I'd always thought about what I wanted to do after football um, and I always you know looked at as some examples and I always like to use Roy Hodgson as an example because he's been in the game a long time and he doesn't need to be in the game if he doesn't want to I'm sure he can go relax or you know Charlie <laughs> Ferguson as well but it's in their blood I think they've got that competitive nature that they need to do they need that camaraderie they need that there's something the inner drive the competitiveness to achieve and be competitive and I guess a lot of us footballers have that from a young age because you know you're you're in a competitive environment that's ruthless from a young age but with that it comes a, a large amount of skill sets that you you inherit and, and you learn and shape you as a person and can you know create a great second career and whatever it might be um, after playing and I'm a big believer um, you know, doing the MSC and sports directorship with yourself, Jack, has taught me a lot about myself and everything else and learnt about people and leadership and values and, and knowing yourself and how to get the best out of others, which is important. I guess many times you probably do things as a human being without fully realising what you're actually doing um, or the impact you can have. And self-improvement and self-education whether it be through courses, CPDs, networking, um, I think it's a brilliant tool and, and a great great way to have an interest outside of football and something that can definitely be highlighted more. I mean, PFA have that statistic there um, and they do provide a lot of funding for courses. And, and I know this year or last year, 2020, um, the funding from the PFA into footballers and into educational programs was you know at a new, new high, I think, the amount of money you know, resources being used and provided um, is good to see. But I think it'd be great to see more players taking interest in it because regardless of what sort of career you have, whether they have a great career financially 
or a career maybe not so great financially, I think it's important to have a bit of a plan. Um, you know, some people like to take time at the game. Brilliant. Like, I think we all would like that. Some people need to keep busy straight away, and I think it's just knowing what's right for you and putting some tools in place to, to prepare yourself and have a network of people that you can use and, and bounce things off. It's a really good message, that Bailey, because what you'll find off the back of COVID is I reckon you'll find a quite a huge increase of players taking up opportunities to look at time after football because you can see that most of them have sat at home for six months and not been able to do anything or, you know, they've been trying to keep fit, but they're just sitting thinking, you know, actually, I need to take this time to look at the rest of my life because and they're reflecting they're self-reflecting so i think that's a really important message and you're you know hopefully a, a role model to many at 28 years old mate don't forget you know you're still young you're still a young player you know and you're making this decision now so hats off to you for that and hopefully there'll be some younger players that will will learn from that because yeah. footballers are a funny breed you know they they feel like it should be given to them on a plate and i think You've got this resilience in you, this determination, which has taken you from halfway around the world to here, you know, and you're making that decision yourself. And I think it should take an individual to make that decision. It's a great message, but I think this takes us on to a, a fantastic question into what you're doing now. And I said I'd tee Jack up for this question. So I'll let, I'll let Jack ask the question because he has a little bit of kind of research behind it as well. Yeah, it's on my bookshelf is one I always go back to. And it's uh, it's written by a gentleman called Simon Sinek to start with why. So I, I don't know if you've read it, Bailey, but for me, it's a really powerful book because it talks around purpose. And unless you have a real internal desire to go and achieve something and are driven towards that, you're never going to be able to get there or lead people to that themselves. So what is the thing now at, at 28 years old? Uh, you know in the middle of your career I suppose which is now that burning desire that what is Bailey's why to really now go and step forward to achieve his future goals yeah it's um a good book great book I've read it not for a long time and I guess your why can can change throughout your career can you know it sort of sticks with you from a young age through setbacks I think you know many setbacks I've shared and I guess a big one now of why I do everything um, is for my wife and, and she's pregnant now and we've got a little one on the way and it's very much to make sure that um, I'm providing a good life for them, a happy life regardless of what that might be and I'm achieving what I want to achieve to sort of leave a family sort of legacy, so leave you know a sense of achievement to my family to show that if you put your mind to it and you commit to it and you have self-belief, on top of having good people around you that can push you, um, that it can be achieved. And that was always a driver for me. I grew up in an area, I guess, brilliant area. I loved my upbringing. I you know, had a very, very good upbringing. And football was probably a second sport where I was from. I'd go to school and I'd always want to play AFL or basketball or volleyball or netball because anyone who played football in my school was soccer. was pretty crap. So I guess I wanted to be, I, I was in me to go, like, I want to prove that like, football is a good sport and people from this area can play it and actually be good at it and, and go on. And it's not just, why don't you bother playing that game? It, like, and it happened a lot in high school, it was the same. And I just wanted to, to prove people wrong and to prove myself right, that I was always good enough. And when someone said you were too chubby and overweight, like the inner driver, you go, I'll prove you wrong. And that happened to me a lot. And that's definitely my, my why. If someone says, you can't do something. Um, if I can't do something or I won't be able to do this, 
I've tended to pretty much prove them wrong, but prove myself right. And that is what I do now. So for me, it's transitioning as a footballer to provide for my family. I, I want to do it instantly. Um, I've got a passion for doing it um, in some some sort of way in sport because some people will probably say oh, you you probably can't be a, a football manager or a coach or a sporting director, which is obviously what I'm um, working towards now with uni. But to get to a job like that takes some, you know, some real challenges and, and some experiences, which will be full of people telling you, um, no, you're not having this job or you can't do that, um, you haven't got enough education, you won't be good enough to do that. Like in football, you're not fast enough, you can't jump high enough, you can't change direction quick enough. All things I've heard many times about my You can't be an attacking right back. Yeah you, yeah, you can't be an attacking right back. So I was trying to pick you. All right, well, I'll eventually prove, well, I couldn't prove Bert wrong because he wasn't there long enough, but <laughs> um, hopefully one day I'll get that opportunity as a coach somewhere. Um I guess that's my why. It's to to prove when someone says you can't do something, that I I'll prove that you can. And um, I'm just an average person, you know. And some people go through much much bigger achievements with many people that tell them they can't. And some people go through different achievements. Whatever the achievement is, it's the size of the achievement is what you make it. And you still got to overcome something. And it's, the proof is just that if you want to overcome it, overcome it. If you don't, and you want to listen to other people, then just be another person that just goes by life and listens to what others others say you can and can't do. We ask every single guest um, a final question. Um, it doesn't have to be too long, but it's really important. And you've covered this already. But you know, what three attributes um, of yourself has helped you get to where you are today? My number one will be. Uh, Perseverance, definitely perseverance. Um, I'm a, I'd say I'm a supportive person and I'm always there for others, which I feel is, um, on the other hand, um, given others, well, had others there for me to help me get to where I am. Um, so by being a, um, putting others first. And the third one, um, self-belief, um, just having the belief that, if I want to do it, great. If I get criticisms, my self-belief will get me through them because some criticisms are great. They help you, some don't, um, but they don't define you. Perseverance, putting other people first and self-belief. You've said self-belief about 10 times already, and I think that is definitely ingrained in you, Bailey. But from from myself, um, obviously, Jack, uh, what it takes to be is, a, is has been an absolute privilege to have you on, you know, the overseas player in this English English game is a tough old tough old fate. So, thank you very very much for taking part in, in what it takes to be. Uh, yeah, thank you guys. I uh, I've learned a bit about myself there as well, <laughs> digging into it all. But now it's brilliant. Thank you both very much. Jack, Bodes. <laughs> I tell you what. I mean, I, when when you said you was going to get baby right on. I kind of, I was wondering, you know, I wonder what this guy's going to be like. You know, he's travelled across the world, played against him a few times, didn't really know too much about him, if I'm perfectly honest. You know, I've played against him, but that's all. That's all. But to hear some of his stories, you know, about what it took for him to come over, his first two months of his career in England, you know, getting bottled on the streets of, of Preston, you know, it's kind of, 
he he had some really really big setbacks in his career that that has obviously made him the man he is today. I think um, I don't think it matters. It doesn't matter what level you play at. I think how you conduct yourself, how you present yourself, and how you have an outlook on life determines your professionalism. And I think footballers get a hard time, and sometimes quite rightly, for some of the daft stuff that they do. But if you want to break some stereotypes down, I think you roll out Bailey Wright. Because you have an hour of Bailey Wright's presence and you hear about his journey, his, his thoughts on things, the, 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 the way he spoke around the importance of investing in yourself around education. It's a really, really powerful, motivating thing. I think yeah. listening to how honest he is and how honest he plays a part in what he does. Do you know what the biggest thing that came out for me was the power of communication? He never once in any of his stories spoken about people in a negative way that had a negative opinion of him if they communicated it in, a, in that respectful, honest way. Yeah. And I think we can all learn a lot from that is that, you know, the times you're going to have to have difficult conversations, you're going to have to have conversations you don't want to have with people. But by addressing those conversations and having them, people still value who you are, even if they don't like the outcome. And I, and I think there was a brilliant, brilliant takeaway messages from that boat today. We didn't we didn't even even cover like empathy in the game and things like that. But I think in a roundabout way, that's what he was trying to say is is actually, you know, at the end of the day, we're all human beings. So treat 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 me like a human being. So when when you have a setback, you know, don't just let people burn, you know, actually explain to them the reasons, you know, treat them like a treat them like a proper human being and they'll react positively. And I just really like his honesty. He's, he, he mentioned how many times did he mention about self-belief? you know how important that is you know to to get to the position he's in today he had an incredible amount of self-belief even with those setbacks so yeah absolutely fantastic so glad to have him on so thank you for for sorting that one out mate that's right mate looking forward to the next one yeah please tune in next week (laughs) now look forward to it mate well done and um yeah see you next time Bailey Wright and to everyone that came back to listen to our podcast. Please like and comment on the episode because any feedback is great to make sure we give our listeners the best experience possible, along with subscribing to our podcast. We hope you really enjoyed that episode and there is plenty more to look forward to. Thank you once again for joining myself and Jack on this podcast and we'll see you next week on What It Takes to Be.